HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we rethink surplus by exploring how innovators are promoting sharing mindsets and responding to excess in creative ways. The whole life cycle of food would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter behind China and the United States if it were a country. You know, in the age of COVID, where a lot of those institutional processors did grind to a halt and a lot of farms had to dump milk in Pennsylvania, even while supermarket cases were, were bare, the organic market stayed strong. They source all of these ingredients, they do all of this work, and then they just boil it for a few minutes and then they throw it away. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We have a really great episode this week, but we wanted to bring in our producer and longtime collaborator, Kong Fan, to talk about the events that happened in Atlanta this week and everything that's been leading up to it. So Kong, stage is yours. Like many Asian Americans, uh, the, the murder of six women this past week um, in Atlanta has been uh, devastating, disheartening, immensely uh, frustrating. Um, sadly, it's yet another bloody chapter in what has been a year of raised assaults and fear within the Asian American community, spurred mainly by xenophobic and racist rhetoric by supposed political leaders in this country. Um, to my fellow Asian American and Pacific Islanders out there, um, please stay strong, stay resolute. Um, to uh, all of our non-Asian listeners, uh, thank you so much for your support. However, your solidarity means a lot more to us. So please, uh, not, not only am I asking you to stand together with us, I'm asking you to stand up with us. Um, please take the time to visit uh, stopaapihate.org for more information um, and to also donate uh, to causes that are supporting um, our community. Thank you. Thank you, Kong. We at Snacky Tunes stand with all communities and believe that we get through this together stronger and by having an open heart, open mind, and listening to each other. If any of you are going through any sort of stress or need any resources, please head to heritageradionetwork.org or check with your local mental health and just in general health services. Um, or drop us a line and we can point you in the right direction. We're here for you. 
We have a really great show coming up. We sit down with Chef William Bradley, owner of Addison out of San Diego, who will be celebrating 15 years in the industry. We talk about what they've seen over the years, uh, how they have handled reopening, and his incredible, absolutely staggering cookbook collection. And then we have a new live performance from Maura Smiley. She's celebrating In Our Voices, which is her latest release. We talk about her growing up in a family of foodies, music as a refuge, and how she has eaten on the road in the last few years of touring. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HRN. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes. Wait past time to step outside the echo. 
Chef, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Uh, welcome to Snacky Tunes, and uh, congratulations on the well. I, I'll say reopening. We'll call it a reopening. Yeah, reopening. Uh, second reopening. Second reopening. Yes. Well, no, no. Thanks for having us on. And yeah. So nice. So nice. You want to do it twice, right? Oh yeah. But, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's been. It's been adventurous, you know, to open a, to have a restaurant that, you know, operating for this September will be 15 years to everything. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Everything that I would have to reopen it twice within almost, you know, a year span would be. I never would have thought of that. So. No. Um, and we're going to get to that. But I, I want to go back sort of to the beginning because you're born and bred San Diego, which is where Addison Restaurant is located. Yeah. And San Diego is a really interesting culinary destination. Oh, for sure. And I'd love for you to give us, you know, cliff notes, quick, right. quick talking points on San Diego and your experience of because you've been in the kitchen since you were a teenager. Sure, sure, sure. So, I mean, I, like like most people, my my generation of chefs, obviously, generationally, things shift and change. So when I when I started in this business, you know, you looked more towards, you know, chefs that you admired, obviously, mm-hmm. not locally, uh, with all due respect at the time, um, to look around to see where you'd want to work, if it was something you would be into. So it was just, it was a way of getting a job back in the sure. early 90s and then getting in a kitchen and just seeing the rhythm and the artistry and the and the command response that kitchens, you know, had, I, I really enjoyed the craft. So to see where San Diego has come in, in, in the years that I was here early and then left for a long time, never, never, never thought I would come back to San Diego based on um, what my goals were, were a chef, but then was just handed this opportunity and the vision of the original owner that he really wanted you know, a restaurant that could compete um, in the state of California as a place that was, you know, a destination. And I think that's the way we approached it in the beginning when I came out, you know, back to, to, to San Diego with Addison, as I just kind of looked around at my surroundings and I kind of saw where the culinary landscape was. And I thought if I can really just keep my head down and focus on not educating the clients but really working with them in the beginning to kind of have them trust what we do because back then i still looked around at a lot of the current menus and it was the same food mm-hmm. the menus when i left 10 years ago or it was the same chef in the same restaurant getting the same award over and over so i just said if i could just keep my head down and really try to focus on doing what i feel is true um to the restaurant um, we, we can withstand the, the the storms, and we have, and here we are now. I mean, and we've been extremely successful, and and a lot of that has to do with, you know, how the city of San Diego has embraced us. They, it was not easy in the beginning. Well, no, because you're doing high end luxury tasting menu. Yes, <laughs> which is you know, when you're around for 15 years has ebbed and flowed in its popularity of just a format for dining. Right. Um, at San Diego, 
is on both ends of that spectrum, right? There's a very like cool, casual, let's rip a fish taco. It right? still is. And it still is. Right. But then it also has, you know, some very well-to-do clientele and, you know, it's a world destination. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think it's easy to see Addison now, right? Like it's right, fully right. formed. You've been around for 15 years. But, you know, to get to a cohesive tasting menu and to have a through line is a really tough thing to see how you got there when you see the final form if you're sitting down to dinner. Um, yeah. What are some of the more surprising influences or touchstones or developments in your approach to this cooking that people would be surprised to know about? But once you, you reveal it, you're like, oh, I understand how this menu came to be. Yeah, I really, I mean, again, I really think the product that we can get here in San Diego is so amazing. And I think really looking at that and kind of celebrating the, the, the products that we can get here and be daring to be different. I think the combination of daring to be different and the products and the beauty that we can and, 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 and infusing them together and just taking the risk that I knew over time, if we built this restaurant on a reputation that had three things that are the, very important to me. Obviously, the cuisine is very important, but also the ambiance. And when I mean ambiance, I mean the feel of the restaurant. Mm. How you feel there. Do you feel intimidated? I, I wanted to remove all that. I wanted you to feel like you were almost going to a spa. So you have the sense of like, here I have, I've, I've decided I want to eat here. It's, I've been decided, I've been wanting to eat here for the last X amount of months or X amount of years. So I always looked at it through the lens of the customer. Mm -hmm. They've spent all this time to get sure. ready. They're so excited. You know, so the three things, like I said, was the ambiance when it, you know, kind of goes into how you feel when you're there, the cuisine and the service. So I didn't want any of those three to overshine one another. Right. And there are times over the last 15 years that let's say the cuisine was lagging behind the service mm. because of maybe the personnel at the time or vice versa. You know, the cuisine was overweighing the service. So I always try to keep those in line, which then I think really makes for an experience and I think what's also made us very successful, and I think it's the silver lining, is we live in a world that unfortunately um, a lot of restaurants, I think, are a little too influenced by one another. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think if you, if you sit down at Addison in San Diego, you shouldn't necessarily feel like you're having a, a meal in um, a Scandinavian restaurant in Scandinavia. Yeah, I mean, there are some times when you see a restaurant that's opened and you go, and I know that this is a little cynical, so I, I'll preface that, but you go, I know exactly what I'm getting just by your press yeah. release. And, 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 and that's what you know, we had to do. I mean, for a long time, we were touted by you know, the, the, our clients as the French laundry of the South. And you're like, thank you. Yeah, but and, 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 no, yeah. thank you. 
Thank you because I, I, I mean, it's that, that, that is one of the, that's a pinnacle restaurant in the world. I mean, what, what chef has done up there and he's a great friend and a mentor in many ways is just to all of us chefs is, is, is truly remarkable, but I didn't want to be that. I didn't want someone to say, Oh, this is just as good as this restaurant, or this is just as good as that restaurant. I wanted people to say, Oh, I really enjoy coming to Addison. It's yeah. Experience. Yeah. I mean, now look, work to do that. Yeah. And look, you are not saying that you're not pulling influence from other people because I know that you have this legendary cookbook collection. Now, I thought that I was doing well because I have like 150, right? Yeah, I got a lot. I got a lot. And I read somewhere that you had like 600. If, If I were to take away i used to be like a library i remember all the cooks okay chef can i see this book and I say, yeah, yeah yeah and then like I, a, a year would go by and i'd go to my chef the cuisine you, where's that book yeah. and they're like oh you you lent that out to so-and-so so-and-so doesn't work here anymore oh okay oh. that was a parting gift yeah i mean what's that phrase never lend a book right yeah. like one of my friends who's over at rustic canyon took this uh, the fat duck oh, book for me that. And they, Jeremy, he just, I, I love him. And my buddy, quote unquote, borrowed the fat duck book. And I was like, well, you know, I, I haven't thumbed through that in a year. And so, um, he's probably going to get more use out of it at his place than me. Right. Um, but I, 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 the reason why I referenced the cookbook is because, you know, I don't want people to come away from this being like, oh, we're true. You know, this guy's truly unique. He never takes her ideas. Cause like, it's, it's not that you don't take ideas, right? right. I, it's that it's it's how you process the information exactly. and filter them uniquely. So I'd exactly. love to hear maybe one book, which I know is tough, but maybe pick like one sure. book that influenced a dish on the menu that people would be like, oh, yeah, I see how he got that idea, but then made it his own. <sighs> that's tough. I mean, it's normally we're throwing softballs on the show, but that's a little bit of a hardball. Yeah, that's hard. That's why I, I do. I like the technique. From the fat duck. Speaking of the fat duck, I it's it, I I like the technique of how he used the fuita brick for the cones mm. on one desserts. Now I have not used that because right now we kind of use a, a vanilla wafer style batter. Sure, sure. But the brushing of the butter and then casing it in the caster sugar and then baking it on the the, the half mold cone is very very efficient. I can see that, and it would be the texture of that would be amazing because sometimes it's a little hard to work with some of the batters the other way, the traditional cornet. But yeah. that's one that I, I we, we've been looking at um, utilizing to kind of make more of a of a consistency. But in terms of like a dish, I really don't. The reason why I collect cookbooks, it's kind of like the person that used to collect albums. Mm. Food and music, bud. I mean, I get it. I just had this romance and the fantasy of like, what is the chef thinking? I mean, look back at some of the books that have moved and have changed. I mean, I, I, you know, nowadays, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I'm using these herbs and this herb. I mean, I can show you a Mark Verot cookbook from like 1980. And his use of wild herbs from around his region would just it would it'd blow your mind. Yeah, I think that uh, especially with the smaller regional cookbooks and what cookbooks used to be, right? Yeah. Like not 
a mega multi, uh, maybe I'll say billion, at least multi-million dollar industry that are pushing very specific things. Like you should just really capture a place at a time and you find these, you know, Appalachian cookbooks or these Southern cookbooks or these regional French cookbooks, just a collection. And they're humbling in a way because you're like, oh, maybe we're not as innovative as we thought we were. It's so brilliant that you said that because you know why? Everything has been done. Yeah. There is times that I've literally – there was one time that I I was sitting there and I was thinking in my head because I I think one of the – it wasn't actually a recipe. It was actually a philosophy by Alain Passard that he wrote in one of his books that would – it really made a lot of sense to me was he looked at combining flavors like colors, Mm. like a painter does. Like this yellow kind of can blend with this color to make a painting. Well, he did that with food and he's right. A lot of times colors that actually go together in the rainbow of foods actually go together in terms of element of taste. But there was one time I was sitting there thinking, you know what, how about doing like, and this was a few years ago, how about doing like a salt baked St. Pierre and we start with like fennel and figs that are in season and then with like maybe a little champagne sauce. And literally like a month later, I was watching uh, a Lambrosie video that I, my a friend got for me from France. And I was translating it and he was talking about serving foie gras with fennel and figs. <laughs> and I, would, I just, I just had, you have to chuckle because you're right. Part of the collections is, is, is to see that. It, it's all been done. Cooking within the seasons, hypersensitive yeah. ingredient. It's all been done. It's just how you do it. And I think the main thing that's important is are you doing it to be you? Or are you doing it to be everyone else? Yeah. And um, there's a little bit of freedom understanding that it's all been done before. Oh, this does huge, huge. Because you're just like, you're like, well, this is because, you know, you can be like, I want to put this dish up, but somebody, and by the way, the quote unquote, somebody or the they's who you're worried about, which, you know, obviously over a long career goes away a little bit, but you're like, oh, they might say I'm poaching from this person. It's like, well, that person knowingly or unknowingly poached from these dozen other people. And I have the timestamp document on a shelf in the form of a cookbook to prove that they did. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. there's been a lot of um, argument and debate over that over, over many years of person started this dish and this, and I just have to sit back and just be like, come on. I mean, this business is hard enough as it is. We shouldn't be, you know, treating one another this way either. Just be getting along a little bit more. No, that's not to say that, you know, credit is deserved and credit is due. Because there are people who may have been like, well, this is my signature dish and everyone sort of knows that. But it's like we're all sort of pulling from the same earth. Exactly. Um, All right. Well, listen, let's take a quick little musical break and then we come back. I want to talk a little bit about Addison and this past year and uh, some of the learnings that you've had over a 15-year career of being at the same restaurant, which is a rarity these days. Uh, We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are here with Chef William Bradley of Addison Restaurant in San Diego, celebrating 15th anniversary this yeah, year. Yeah, coming up, coming up. And, you know, two rare things. One, that you as a chef have stayed at one restaurant for so long, and I say that like industry-wide. But two, you've had the experience to see the fluctuations of the world and how it affects a restaurant. Um, you know, what what have you seen? What can you share? Because look, I mean, you survived the, you know, I would say the largest last shift, which was the global economic meltdown in 2008, 2009. Yeah, but you've also that. seen smaller things. You've seen presidents change. You've seen trends change. You've seen things like that. Mm-hmm. So sort of what's kept you at the same restaurant, but also what have you learned from being at the restaurant for so long? So, I mean, I've, I've had a great privilege of, of, of staying somewhere for as long as I have. I mean, I've been well supported uh, by the local community. It's been, uh, you know, it's, it's a great quality of life living here. Mm-hmm. I've, I've started a family here. So I've been very um, fortunate to have a lot of that support over time. And, and I, you know, I have a vision for the restaurant and it's for it to become one of the top tables in the world. And that I think takes a long time, a long, long, long time, especially being here in San Diego. So I've just really kept my head down and tried to, you know, you know, steer the ship into the right direction. And we've gone through some, some turbulent times like the rest of the world. I think the economic downturn, for a restaurant of our caliber uh, in 08 was very challenging. Yeah. That was kind of that era where you were kind of not looked at the same way if you were actually spending money on um, things that weren't necessary. Yeah. So really, really, really hard. Um, and, you know, with trends and things like that, I mean, don't pay much attention to them because, as we all know, they have a beginning and an end. Sure. And um, as I do, you know, admire some of them. I think some of them have influenced us at times in some ways. But then again, you know, we kind of just, we're a destination. So we just kind of work really hard at um, making sure that, you know, the destination that we have there and when you come there, it feels like you're in a different place. And I think we've done really well with that over the years. But this last thing that we're all still dealing with. Yeah. uh, that that it's been more you know it's been very 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 mentally challenging yeah i think the mental challenge has really not been fully understood because we're you know the best way i've heard about it is we're living through trauma right and it's tough because if you still have your job still feed your kids still have the restaurant you know still have everything in many ways, they're like, well, you're doing better than others, right? Because some people have lost their jobs, lost their homes, lost their restaurants, lost, you know, things like that, lost their lives, right? Which is the number one loss. And so it's tough to be like, well, we're suffering or my people are suffering or the, the people that work for me or, 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 or myself as an individual am mentally suffering. But since I'm not suffering or hasn't lost as much as others, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say that I'm suffering sure. or say that my trauma is real. What advice or how do you talk to the people you work with who are just not 
relatively as badly off as some of the people who have really been devastated by this, but are still going through, you know, this, this incredibly unbelievable, unique, tough time. What advice do you give them? How do you talk to the people that, that are in your sphere and say like, it's tough. You're okay to feel this way, but there, there's maybe a light. This is how we'll get through it together. Yeah. I mean, I think that's when I feel like we've sat down and really rose to the occasion. I think the number one thing you said in the beginning is, is reflecting on safety. And we had to reflect back on, is it safe to reopen? Is it safe to bring back the staff? How do they feel uh, physically and mentally? How can, and what can we do um, to protect them, be there for them? And we've, we've really come together. You know, when, when, when we closed the first time, and we decided to reopen two months after um, California was allowed sure. to reopen. I took some time to, to, to see if it was going to be the right thing to do at the time. Mm. When we reopened, you know, there were um, some, some, some staff members that were very, very, very strong staff members that were, you know, played a great role in the restaurant that just didn't feel like they could come back. And I completely understand. I mean, it was the most understanding I've ever been. Like, it sounded like it was hard for them to l- tell me that. And I, and the first thing I told every one of them says, "Listen, I'm, we're going to be extremely missed." And I, I understand. Yeah. You don't have to explain yourself. I get it. I totally get it. And the same time, this 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 next time that we've opened, there was some you know people that you know we really really really. Um, admired for their contributions and they, you know, they just didn't feel that they could come back. And again, I get it. So it's more about listening to them and making sure that um, we're there for them and, and, and and show that we protect them. We lead by example in a situation like this, you know, we do all the health measures, we social distance all the time. We talk to them. What do you need? How's it outside of work? Is there anything you need? Yeah. wearing your masks all the time, not politicizing anything show and, and showing strength that this is, this is about mankind, humankind, people, all of us, um, you know, and we're all equal in this. We're all in this together. That's why, you know, when it was the opportunity for restaurant people to get their vaccine, you know, I wore a mask to protect my fellow citizens. Mm-hmm. I'm getting the vaccine to protect my fellow citizens. Yeah. Very simple. Yep. There's nothing, there's no, it's just, it's very simple. And that's the approach that we take um, at the restaurant. You know, we, we, we surround ourselves with a lot of like-minded people to where they feel the same way. And it's like, listen, we do this for man, for humankind. And that's the most important thing. And, and we, we, we've been very lucky um, to get through this, you know, relatively not as scathed as some, but scathed more than others. So it's really about rebuilding and coming together as an industry. Because if you look at this as your own individual thing, you're being selfish. And that's kind of not how that's not how we are at all. But if you look at this globally, our industry has been um, really, really, really challenged. And it's time to come together. So I, you know, all I say now is, you know, as people become inoculated and, you know, things start to return to normal as much as people can support uh, the restaurant business 
as, as we, we would greatly appreciate it because it's been very, very hard. Um, from like, you know, little mom and pop shops, yeah. to coffee shops to you name it. It's everyone's been affected in a lot of ways. So, I mean, look, the one benefit to this was the coalescing of the independent restaurant community through, oh, the, yeah. through the IRC yeah. and their, their work, you know, there was this, I mean, you touched on it earlier, but this, it's such a hard industry. And, you know, in many ways with the way that modern food media is set up, yeah, yeah. or that's not fair because that does a disservice to, I think, to like what our network does and things like that. But let's say the bad side of food media makes people sort of competitive and like it's a zero sum game where there can only be winners and losers. But yeah. what we saw is that when the restaurant industry, the independent restaurant industry comes together, I mean, they made billion dollar changes through government, right? Like, and it just, you think if that the IRC had existed before the pandemic, the money may have come sooner, more restaurants may have been saved. But the great thing is that like it exists now and there there is a path for that it should this ever happen again uh independent restaurants will not be caught out in this way 100 percent. i want to talk a little bit about the diners because you know when they come to your restaurant now i, I had my first dining out experience and i don't know how long yesterday and it was a simple breakfast it was a simple breakfast it was great i didn't want to leave i was yeah. like i was like i shouldn't have a fourth cup of coffee but i like I'm here, I'm out, and things like that. Um, but, you know, that was a very simple uh, two eggs and hash type of situation. The food that you're putting up in your experience is a little bit longer, but obviously you've had to adjust because there's a California curfew and things like that. What have you seen um, the shift in the customer experience, and how have you adjusted now that you've reopened? So we, we, we have – a great space where we are. So we have this outdoor area where I can, you know, pretty close to seat the maximum capacity that I sat inside. Cool. And now outside it's, it's spread out a lot more. So it seems a little bit more intimate in, 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 in the two different sections of, of, of where we've got people that outside, but we have more space, eight, nine feet in between each table. Some of them are like, you know, around the corner by this one area and they're all by themselves. So I think people have really come um, to Addison knowing that we're extremely spacious. Mm. So when they actually come in, you can almost see the relief. They're like, okay, we haven't been, we know of the reputation and oh, wow, look at the space. So that you can see the sense of relief. And then from – so if you take that, I think they come in very like excited um, and really, you know, like you said, they want to sit back, relax, and, and, and enjoy themselves. And we get a lot of people that are coming in now and, you know, it says that they're celebrating on their notes, but they don't really tell us. And then do you, you – can you – you're celebrating something special, I see. Yeah, we just got vaccinated. Yeah. There's a lot of celebration that's been happening this time, which has been nice. And then, but from our end, there is, like you touched on, when I think it's been the best thing for the restaurant is there's a curfew. Yeah. For the diners in, in San Diego, and I think it's all state of California still. Uh, you have to be out by 11 o'clock. 
So what that does is I think that for us here in the kitchen, I wouldn't necessarily say much for the service staff, that makes us really, really, really have to focus a little bit more on the rhythm of the menu and the sense of how it's structured, what stations get X amount of courses. So the diner is actually in and out in two and a half hours. Now, we used to do a four-hour menu sometimes. Wow. Frankly, I think um, the guests enjoy the shorter version much more than the long kind of drawn-out version. And I think overall it's been a win-win to where we'll take this same um, approach to executing every night in the mindset of we will always be somewhat on a curfew. So we have just adapted a new um, repertoire of how we execute the tasting menu. And I think the paying customer, our guests, are the beneficiaries to it because they just enjoy themselves much more and it doesn't seem too long. Because as we all know, you get to a certain point when you've been sitting. Uh-huh. I've been there. You've, you've got to hold their attention. And there's many ways to hold their attention. And I think you go over that threshold with too many dishes or too long of stay and you lose their attention. And the experience, I think, after that threshold becomes diluted. Yeah. It could be for all the wrong reasons. I would say that there was a time when I was really into tasting menus and there was a couple moments that I was like, I've been sitting in this banquette for hours. I am like, I'm like sweaty, which is gross, but like, you know, so you're eating and you're drinking and like, you're not really moving. And you're like, I just, I like, I've lost the magic a little bit. Like it it needs to be, cause look, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not cheap, right? Like this is expensive. It's an experience. Um, Addison and then anything that else. So you don't want people to feel like they're rushed, but there's also got to be like, uh, you know, it's a fine line. It's a fine line. It's like, you know, I look at it. It's like, okay, if let's say I'm not going to Broadway or the theater. Right. And I look at the time, but I want something that keeps me in that same mindset two two and a half hours. Right. Maybe a little bit of intermission built in things like that. Like, I'm like, that's, that's my, that's my cap for timing. Sure. And I think it's most people, right? Like, sure. but the thing is, was that people are now willing to spend that money instead of going to like a play or something else. Like their experience, their the event for the night is the is the meal. Yeah, and that that has changed a lot too. But I always reference back to, you know, God rest his soul, Anthony Bourdain, mm. when he ate, it was no reservations, and he ate at Giro. Giro dreams of sushi, right? So he he, you remember that episode? Oh yeah, I mean, but that twenty minutes, twenty minutes. That that <laughs> price per minute is wild. But I'm just saying that I remember watching. I was thinking, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's super cool. I just remember, and it's always stuck with me. And I've always tried to get the timing nut. So, but for us doing fine dining, it's a, it's very different. It's not sushi style like that, but there is a fine line to where you can hold their attention. For us, it's like, you know, the champagne trolley comes, and this comes, and that comes. And yeah, it is part of the experience, but I agree with you 100%. Two and a half hours, three hours is it. Three hours is it. Because at that point, you're just like, unless you're moving location. Three hours, 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, unless you're, you're like you're here, you start here because um, Vespertine does that a little bit, right? Like it, you're moving throughout this whole space. Sure, sure. Um, and that's that's, I don't, you know, that's an interesting way to to do it. Obviously, pretty much impossible now during COVID. But like, oh, you you start here in the lobby, then you go to your table, then you're out on the, you know. I think that I I don't know. I know there was some. There were restaurants back in the early '80s. Yeah, to do that, they used to come in for one seating. Some of the three stars in France, you'd come in. Like if you were staying at like um, Maison de Trago, Michel Trago's restaurant, mm. then you would come down because you would be staying in the hotel. You yeah, would, we'd all have canapes together, and then you would go into the restaurant and and then you would leave. And yeah. then I, I don't know, maybe I'm off with this, but I think was it France and they kind of re re looked at that and had everyone kind of come into the little lounge and have some nibbles and some champagne. Then you move into the dining room, you sit there and then you come back into the lounge for dessert. I think that is such a cool idea. If you have the space to do that, because like you said, it can break up the timing to where you're only inside the restaurant for an hour, but you've been in all three locations for two, three hours. Yeah. I mean, Maud Curtis Stone's tasting menu restaurant. They had this cool little, like upstairs clubhouse with like records and things like that. And that's where you did your first bites and first, first sips. And then you moved down to the restaurant and that was cool. Cause you're like, Oh, like it's, it's breaking it up. And so the timing feels different, but it's, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's just, uh, I, I'm with you there. I think, I think what burnt me out before the amount of food and maybe even the cost of tasting menus was how much time I was committing, uh, to, um, to one restaurant, um, but now that I have a toddler, the idea of sitting in one spot for four hours and having a meal is like, it exist. it's laughable. Welcome to the club. I know. Uh, on that, on that too, in terms of the length of the menu that I think is important is I would rather get six courses that I've got three or four bites of each dish than 32 courses where they're all a canopy. Yeah. And I think that's where kind of – I think that's comes to timing again. I think where you can weave that in where less courses but a little bit more substantial will help that in terms of timing because sometimes it is hard for a kitchen to put out that many courses. It's almost like you would have to be doing like a course every two, three minutes. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing too. Like I want – I'm at like a six course, just knock my socks off, right? Yeah. Yes. Like, like blow my hair back six yep. courses. Well, I don't have any hair. So someone already did that, but uh, you know, six courses hit me up, but like, you know, from, from everything you're doing, I feel like you're worth, you know, the time and the experience to be like, I'm going to take you on this journey. Come on this dance with me. Listen, listen to no skipping tracks, right? It's an yep. LP, exactly. both sides of the album. Yeah, yeah. Don't pick up the needle. We'll pick it up in the middle so you can have a bit of a breather, but just like hang out and we'll take you on this incredible experience. Yeah. Hopefully we get there one day when we got a hit list. (laughs) You will. Well, listen, Chef, thank you so much. If people want to check out Addison, uh, follow along, where can they go? Yes, you can obviously come to uh, the website. So the website is um, addisondelmar.com. And you can see us there, or you can on Instagram. You know, I'm under Chef William Bradley. There's tons of information, an IG feed for the restaurant itself. But there's you know tons of ways to come see us. We are a destination, so we look forward to everyone over spring break in the summertime. You know, getting out and um, coming and experiencing different parts of this beautiful city. So amazing. Well, thank you so much. We have another song from the archive, and then a live performance. 
here on Snacky Tunes on HRN. Chamber 
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Maura, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down, chat with us, play some live songs. Thanks for having me. Congratulations in our voices out this year. You know, it's one of the few things that I have deeply come to rely on, which is new music, new music from great artists. So I appreciate the the new tunes. Anytime I see a new music come in, I'm like, um, thank you. It's a, <laughs> a little ray of creative sunshine. Yeah, thank you for thinking that because it does. From my side of the of the fence, it's like. Oh, really? More music? Sometimes I feel the opposite. So thank you. <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to talk about the album, um, but in some of the stuff you sent over and some of the research I found, I want to go back to your early days because it's very rare that we have a musician who grew up in the farm world and grew up mm. sort of working the land with their family. Um, although I, I have seen the direct parallel of chefs who worked on farms go into chefing and you can see that like hard work and tenacity, understanding their literal roots. Um, but with you, what was it like? You grew up in Vermont, I believe. And yeah, uh, I did. cows, the whole shebang, right? Yep. The whole shebang. Um, so growing up on a back to the lander farm meant lots and lots of work, old kind of old machinery, old tools, so much idealism and, um, you know, learning in some cases, learning your, how to farm from a, from a book. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so it was, it was, um, what I, what I appreciated about it was this sense that, that I had later on that I could do things with my hands, that I wasn't afraid of working mm-hmm. all the time. And that kind of, gave me a sense of being able to make whatever I wanted to do happen. So I'm appreciative of that. But it was, you know, dirty. I was a smelly, dirty, dirt under (laughs) my nails little kid. Um, I was kind of tough, super sensitive little kid, but like developed a really tough um, quality about me. So I was I was probably a bit of a nightmare. (laughs) Um, Uh, You know, I think. I think now the idea of working the farm or having a different way of growing up 
is maybe a little bit more accepted. I think back then it was probably a little bit more, oh, that kid grows up, lives on a farm. And the idea of connecting food to farms was a little bit more radical than it is now. It was. Yeah, it was not cool at all. And there was no awareness that, yeah, there was, you wanted to be kind of more of a city kid or a suburban and, and, you know, being aware of when it's time to pick the spinach crop versus, you know, who's like, who's releasing the latest song. Like I had no, there was a lot that I missed because of where I was and I had to catch up on that later Mm. um, in my adult life. I mean, in some ways I've never caught up (laughs) with my peers. Well, uh, well, I think catching up and who knows what and what's cool, what's not is, I think as you get older, it gets to be a little bit more relative. I would rather know when peak spinach season is than maybe with the new song coming out. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, when you think of farm I, yeah. life, though, uh, you sometimes think of that's all it is, right? It's like you go to school, you come home, it's farm. But music did find a way into your life early on. Like You were able to at least start getting into yeah. it at a kid. What was music's role? Was there anyone musical in your family who said, you know, we farm, but we also play music or we listen to this? How did how did you get introduced yeah. to it? There was a real Yeah, it was a it was a strongly connected music and farming were strongly connected both by my parents and by the people around them and so they had folk song, you know, folk singing circles that that would happen occasionally. That was especially when I was young, really young. And then um the kind of stuff that I It wasn't like, so folk music and then this um, intense aesthetic around old things, like old things were better, kind of went hand Mm -hmm. in hand, right? So you listen to your Smithsonian Folkways records and old banjos and you learn about old songs and you make sure you know how to operate an old tractor and you make sure you can oil up an old tool. So those kinds of ways of thinking were very parallel, you know, and intermeshed. Um, But then the other side of the reality of, uh, of kids and music is that the way that I could get lessons was that classical music was kind of the first way in for me to actually learn how it works, you know? So I went and took piano lessons Mm. and then as things got, you know, tough Um, in my family, that was turned out to be a refuge from Mm. my family. Um, And so that was kind of how music began. And their LP collection, of course, was was the first, you know, what my baby ears got trained by. Yeah, I mean, music in any situation, I think pre-internet, right? shows you what a bigger world could be out there. And especially if you feel that what's going on at home or the life that's laid out in front of you that may not be your choice can be at times confining. Music really is opening up. Right? Yeah, it really opens up the world to you. You're you're so right. And that feeling of isolation or separation or not being where you 
would like to be, that can be any kid anywhere. And in my case, you know, folk music still, you know, that came with me and classical music too. But um, the farming part, you know, those the elements and the wisdom, some of it came with me, but most of it I left behind. And um, what, one other thing I think that I took with me from being a farmer kid in Vermont was this sense that everybody can do music and it's not for just really fancy and talented people, you know? So it's sure. this sense of yeah. being with, singing with, making music with mm. rather than for, you know? So. Yeah. That's kind well, of let's hear some of that music that you've made. The first track you're going to play for us today is Refugee. What's the story behind yeah. that song? Okay, so this is a very personal um, song about visiting and and then for the next three years visiting refugee camps and doing what I could to help out. Um, but mostly my life was changed by meeting the people that had become refugees. And this was specifically written for the, the people in the Cali jungle. And, um, and yeah, so this is my song refugee. It's about empathy and compassion and, um, yeah, never othering the other, never othering people so that they become anything less than human and, um, and worthwhile. Mm. It's a beautiful sentiment. Here we go. Maura Smiley live on Snacky Tunes here on HRN. Please, oh, bring me shelter. 
Thank you so much. What a beautiful song. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, you know, food and being in a band ties so much together because a lot of the times it's uh, you have to make a choice, especially when you're touring or you're out on the road. And I think in your earlier sentiment where you, you know, where you sort of realize that not everyone um has a barrier to make music and sort of anyone can do that. I think once you get off the farm life or start realizing what food is out in America, you start to realize like not everyone can eat well, like not everyone has access mm-hmm. to vegetables or things like that. Um, yeah. And <laughs> having that foundation of understanding food or, or spring on the road, especially in, you know, food deserts can, I would imagine be a little bit of a struggle. So yeah. what was it like when you went on the road? How did you keep that, nutrition up or does it just go out the window at some point you know to grind it out as a musician yeah it's such a good question um so yeah i i can come at this a lot of different ways so i got crohn's disease when i was in my late 20s and so at the same time i was touring a ton and so i had this opportunity to take care of myself a friend of mine handed me a book with a diet called the specific carbohydrate carbohydrate diet and she said try this and so I did and so what I found when I was constantly on the road which was you know 75% of my year sure um w- was that I would carry a lemon salt mm-hmm. hummus like some piece of fruit <laughs> an avocado if I could and um that was with me at all times you know and Um, so I lived, I lived on such simple food, which in some ways I really liked, you know, like I would force whatever band I was with to go to the grocery store and get, you know, some vegetables, some celery, some carrots. Um, and then, so, so I would say, yeah, there, there are definitely food deserts and thank God for the hippies, you know, of, you know, that are my parents' generation because a lot of, of that generation really mm. started the whole thing of, of founding, you know, little eateries and getting health food into the grocery stores, you know, in a rural place. Um, sure. So, there, yeah, there was a, there was across my touring life, there has been a big change. Um, 
And I would say the hardest place for me to tour um, was parts of Northern Europe um, because, and Hmm. not Eastern Europe. And it was like when, uh, like Switzerland was my nemesis because it was like cheese and bread and chocolate. A lot of cheese, a lot of bread. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I can make it work anywhere pretty much. Yeah. Which is, which is, um, that's a tough one. Something. <laughs> but that's I a remember tough being one. in St. Gallen and, and sitting down to a meal and it literally just being melted cheese and bread. And you go like, okay, one time, fine, whatever. And then like on the second or third meal, you're like, where I, I'm not <laughs> mad at this. I just, I need like a vegetable or something. Yeah. Let's have a vegetable. Yeah. Let's have a vegetable. So I, I mean, I would also, I, it was a joke because the only alcohol that I could have for a while was vodka. Like all other mm. alcohols were, would cause me to be more sick as a Crohn's person. And so I would have those little bottles of, of vodka and I would carry my own olives to make a little, um, you know, a little dirty martini. Dirty martini on the go. I mean, I I feel like I've been doing that during quarantine just around my house. Yes. Um, Yes, exactly. I I want to talk a little (laughs) bit about the music because um, I really like the diversity of Mm, ways that you've approached the music industry, even Mm. to the point where you sell sheet music on your website, which I don't think I've seen before. From someone <laughs> yeah. who's also, you know, a singer songwriter. Um, yeah. Can you talk about it's not y- your diversification and your approach to it? Which I have to imagine, like during a time when there's no touring or the music industry has been upended, has been a bit of a benefit to you know you, yes. you eking it out as an artist or surviving as an artist. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Darren, for for you know thinking that through because you're totally right and I've been lucky and I had somebody sit me down since I had worked you know in community music for so long I had somebody sit me down when I was 20 my friend Malcolm Douglas and say um after I was I was writing a lot of music Mm. for for people to sing he's like you know you could actually get paid for this if you want (laughs) to give this to other people you get paid you're like what (laughs) <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, but because we'd grown up like photocopying music, like sure. it was all totally illegal, but like that's that's the way we learned at the time. So, because of him, I started, you know, I put up like three things on my website at that time, which was brand new. And because I was out there touring, I could point people in that direction and yeah, they would buy it. Um and because I was making CDs. They had examples of what it sounded like. So it was, it went together pretty well. Um, And I've, I've always been, you know, I'm really embodied in the way that I make music. So for me, the quarantine and the, the whole lockdown situation has been the hardest because I don't actually make music as well by myself in a room. I like really vibe off. Every musician is like this, I think, but I'm so physical with what I do that um, I think I thrive in groups of people, you know, and like, you know, encouraging singing from a huge group of people with my arms and my whole body and my voice. And so um, I guess that's been 
the the lucky thing is that because I have that way and that wish to say, come on, come on over and try it. Um, that's I've made community where I think a lot of musicians um, that want to perform are relying on people sort of adoring mm. them as a as just an icon, you know. But in a way, I'm more adjacent to you. Like again, it brings that same spirit of of um, you know c- community, small community. Like I'm let's let's sing this together. So often my my concerts will have lots of singing along and that kind of thing, which is um, you know not everybody's taste, but <laughs> but yeah, I enjoy doing that. So um, yeah, there's a lot of diversity for sure. I love it. Um, all right, let's hear another song. I believe we have Days of War up next, which you're going to play for us. What's the story behind yeah. that song? So that is um, written by myself and my partner, Seamus Egan. And um, we asked my friend Sam Amadon to sing it with me. But the version that you're going to hear is before I did that, the official version of this on the new record um, is with Sam, Sam Amadon and Seamus Egan on guitar, but this is just me and the banjo. And this is about, you know, being an artist and being a person who, well, it's called days of war because it's about a time when we are all in our echo chambers and where mm. there's outrage and disappointment. And how do we go on doing what we do, Darren, you know, of like making beautiful things, <laughs> you know, trying to bring, bring people together when nobody, you know, there's, there's this sense that everyone's angry and not listening. Yeah. Well, it's tough, but songs like this help us understand it a little bit more. Here we go. Maura Smiley live on Stacky Tunes on HRN. Sometimes see your meeting ground beneath. 
smoke and the battle sounds, yeah. In these days of war, in these days of war, oh little bird, why do you fly? days of war where no one listens anymore Will I fly because I must carry on to love to feed to make my home and I seem to know that love is near because anger holds the hand of fear is near because anger holds the hand of fear I sing to know that love is near oh courage take the hand of fear in these days of Thank you so much. Um, another beautiful song and leads us into talking about your new album, Inner Voices, which came out this year, which, and if I get this wrong, I apologize, but I believe you started recording or in the studio March of last year, right before the pandemic hit. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly a year ago. Which, uh, I mean, by this point, everyone was starting to realize well, no one knew what it was going to be, but everyone started to be like, oh, we might be going home for a little bit and things like that. But, you know, you're racing against the clock to get these components done in what is arguably the toughest communal space, which is a recording studio. Um, yeah. What was that time like? And then what was the journey of putting the album together during this last year? So the actual album recording time was fairly peaceful still. We were just... What was happening to one of my singers is that she leads these like musical tours and she was leading a tour in New Orleans um, mm -hmm. just after because we were in Mobile, Alabama. Yeah. Um, and that was all coming crashing down. So she was very, very stressed. Um, but she's such she is the kind of person that processes it and is like a ray of sunshine <laughs> to everybody. So really, we had this kind of oasis moment or four days with each other and then you know we all had to scatter so um the process of putting it together was all remote 
And that was with my friend who has produced most of my albums with me, um, David Weber. And he and I would do this over FaceTime and uh, Zoom and, mm. and, you know, sharing our dot and et cetera. So that was the way. Um, and I wasn't actually going to put that much effort into, you know, putting this record out in a bigger way. I was... These are songs that also some of them exist on the previous album, Unzip the Horizon. And so I thought this is mm. going to be from my singer community and um, no big deal. Right. But then as I was mixing them, Black Lives Matter movement was um, out there. And sure. it was as if this this um, collection of people and these songs that are so much about so, social justice seem to sort of like edge up in their urgency. So I decided that I was going to make this, you know, the, the mixing kind of got a little bit more like I wanted it more muscular. I wanted it to be um, a really finished thing. And so, yeah, it took me up through early fall to finish it. And um but it was totally worth it. I think I'm, I, I like the way it sounds. You, you've been very open and vocal about being a white folk singer during the time of black lives matter and the wrestling you have in as an artist about what you can and cannot say, how much you can support or lend a voice. How do you yeah. navigate that discussion and it's come up on this show and other conversations that I myself have had to have in the last year, um, you know, being a, a straight white Jewish man yeah. of just being like, it's sometimes mm -hmm. the words feel wrong in your mouth, but you know, it's important to say, how do you lend your voice? How do you lend your support? How do you be a good ally where it is practice and not performance? Yeah, that's a really good way of asking it. And I think the, the definition of practice is that you admit that you could be making a mistake even as you're doing something, right? Mm -hmm. So practice and authenticity is about admitting um, I am not the authority here, but I am going to put my thoughts together after listening and absorbing well. So for a while, actually, across the summer, I didn't feel like I was going to write a lot of songs. I didn't have that um, that impetus that some of my friends for sure had. Um, and so I would say what I've done is, um, is that I've learned and I've read a lot over the summer and the fall. Mm -hmm. And I really feel like I, I look around and I feel that we are part of a very historic time, you know? Um, that this is a very dangerous time, that this is a, a time when um, media is is has got a dizzying job to do, you know, including, I don't know, this kind of media, you and I yeah. talking. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we got to keep, we got to stay out here and keep on bringing it up in all of the ways that we can, you know, think about what changes have come down um, to help people who who can't be helped, you know, and I still believe that um, that food and music are are a place where people are, can kind of leave their anger 
for a little while and consider the humanity of another human being. So it's, um, that's where I kind of, you know, keep my energy going and I keep my engine going with that idea. Yeah. I mean, that's what we've always loved about this show is that sometimes when words are maybe not enough, that food and music can help get sentiment across Yeah. In a way that just talking cannot. Right. And talking can be, can be, I mean, I I love that you asked performance versus practice, performance versus practice. And I think this is a time when also we, as, um, as people who, who passes white, um, are, we're questioning how to make, uh, make what we make, mm-hmm. but also admit that we maybe should include other voices more than we have, you know, all the things that, that I'm sure you've been aware of and, and people in your circle have been telling you, but, um, I think also just listen to the, the, like the little traumatized child that's trying to keep up with all of this and, um, make your art according to that, you know, to, to speak from that, you know, the sense of injustice that that little kid has is probably, um, you know, what, what makes your voice feel true. Yeah. Well, I think that's an absolute beautiful sentiment and a great tee up for your last song, which is wise man. But before you tell us what the last song is about, if people want to check out the album, get your sheet music, Maybe in a couple of months, look at tour dates. Where can they go? Yeah. <laughs> one day. Uh, yeah, they just, one day. Uh, you can just go to my website, morasmiley.com. And it's, there's a silent I in there. It's M-O-I-R-A-S-M-I-L-E-Y.com. And then, you know, all the usual spaces for music you can find. Um, and then, yeah, touring, we don't know. My, my only... Um, for sure or kind of for sure thing is in England at the end of the summer, everything else is up in the air. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. yeah you, you send over interesting thing. Cause you said that um, your sister's trying to open up a restaurant and yes. you just put out an album with no touring a date and the, the, uh, the, the parallels yeah. of the halting of the food and music industry have really come to light during this time. Um, and I thought it was interesting yes. to see that like within your own family, the intersection of food and music while you took different ways to express yourself are still dealing with some of the same uh, practical issues of, of showcasing and sharing what you do with the world. Totally. So yeah, that yeah. we, why do we choose these paths that are so tenuous, you know, oh. and, and, and yet watching her, it makes me feel that she's, she is doing the right thing. She's following this dream, even though it terrifies me to watch her. Oh my God. Um, but Yeah. But it is, it's such a beautiful thing, yeah, um, to, to have that will and that drive to make something beautiful and delicious. So, yeah. Mm. Well, what um, is this last song, Wise Men, about before you play it for us? Take us out. So Wise Men is just about um, the, the wisdom of love, I guess is the way to put it. It's the wisdom of love and... Um, it follows um, sort of the inner life 
of a person who on the outside looks to be, you know, the the icon of wisdom. So, um, so this is this is his story. Amazing. Well, listen. Thank you so much. Here we thank go, you. wise men. Morris Miley on Snacky Tunes on HRN. We will see you next time. Stay safe out there, everyone.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.